Hey, this is Pastor A.J. Swanson from Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. The following is our summer 2022 sermon series called One Another, in which we look at the one another passages and concepts within the Bible with the hope that we will see discipleship relationships take place within our church in the years to come. Join us on our journey of life with one another. You can find out more information about Hicksville Cornerstone Church at hixcc.org. That's hixcc.org. Enjoy this Sunday sermon. Last week, we began our One Another series um, in which we looked... Whoop, man, I didn't even give you an opening slide. I stink, brother. Um, and we looked at the One Another uh, that happened in Acts 8. How it only takes a moment to drastically change someone's life and, in hindsight, the life of a nation. Philip followed the leading of the Lord in Acts 8 and met a man from Ethiopia along the road. And he came alongside him for minutes and discipled him in the scriptures. And that momentary interaction led to a multitude of spiritual children being born from the testimony of the eunuch. And the whole of the story is this. Think about it. This is the whole story summarized. They met one another on the road. That was it. Brothers and sisters will come into our lives for a season. Sometimes it's a moment on the road. Other times it's a Bible study, as Coach kind of talked about this morning, that takes place over years. Others meet us at our lowest moments of life and walk with us through it. And that is what the church does. That the church was commissioned by God in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. And when we look at the American church, I feel like we've lost this commission. And as we begin our series, as I do most series, I want us to interact with some of the hurdles that we find in our cultures from making this a reality. What keeps us? from being disciple makers. So let's talk about some of those hurdles that we face this morning. The first hurdle is this, is that we live in a consumer culture. There was a shift in the American church, if you look at uh, just testimonies, really from World War II on, as the culture changed, to where the question became, as people approached the church, and as they, we, now we call it church shopping, talk about a consumer uh, phrase, right, when we church shop, um, where the question becomes not, how can I be part of a church, but the question becomes, what can that particular church do for me? I had this really made clear to me uh, when I was part of a church plant um, at my, in my last uh, city in Dallas, Texas. Um, we had a lady come in. Again, we're a church plant. We're meeting in a small building that functioned as a office building before it was a church. And we had our children's church program in the pastor's office. Now the pastor's office was awesome. I lusted after that number of bookshelves for a very long time. Uh, but we had our children's church meet in our pastor's office. And we had a visitor come in. And her questions about the children's ministry program or her complaints were not... What do you teach the children the Bible? How do you teach the children the Bible? The people that teach the children scripture, are they qualified? Have they gone through any training? Have they, do they know the scriptures? Her complaint was, there's not enough cute pictures on the wall in here. 
But isn't that so? A consumer culture within the church? She was more concerned about whether her kids would be entertained for the hour that they were in a small room. And it's the same way in many churches. Many churches are much more likely to have a production meeting than they are a prayer meeting. We have become so program-driven that we've lost what it means to be disciple-driven. In the majority of churches, this is a true statistic, less than 5% of those that attend actually serve in some capacity. Less than 5%. Why? Because church has become, become something that we consume and not something that we're a part of. And so if that church doesn't entertain me for the hour or two that I'm there on a Sunday morning, we'll find something else that entertains us on a Sunday. Pastor Alistair Begg riffs on this in one of his sermons on worship. I'll summarize the point. This is what he says. It says, it's a common question for people to ask, how was worship this morning? Which, if you know the history of a church, is a very weird question to ask somebody because we can't answer it. Think about it. The point of our worship is not whether all the right chords were sung or all the right notes played at the same time. All those are good, but the object of our worship is not the production value, the musical value, or whether the sermon was delivered the best, you know, that value. But the object of our worship is Christ. The question that we should ask on a Sunday morning is whether the service made much of King Jesus because he is the only one that can answer the question, how was worship this morning? Because he is the only one that knows our hearts. He is the only one that can examine them. And for many of us on Sunday, my fear is that the Lord would say, well, they were present, but they did not participate in worship. They never one another in worship because the focus on the praise songs was how it made them feel as individuals, but not whether the majesty of God was proclaimed. Alistair Begg says this, man, it only gave you like half the, I'm sorry, I had some issues with PowerPoint this week, so let me read to you the fill in the blank. It says this, in many cases, congregations, this is one of your fill in the blank, many cases, congregations unwittingly have begun to sing about themselves and how they are feeling rather than about the God and his glory. I'll say it again. In many cases, congregations unwittingly have begun to sing about themselves and how they are feeling rather than about the God and his glory. And this is an outcome of consumer culture. We consume church as a witness to the worship service. And again, when I say worship here, I'm talking about all the service, the prayers, the preaching of the word, and the praise. Worship is the whole service, not just the singing and the music. But when we consume church, we're taught to only be present. We aren't disciplined to participate, and that is a hurdle to the American church. We are prone to be consumers and ask consumer-related questions. And further, our complaints are consumer in nature, too. And the second hurdle is an outcome of that. We've seen this even more in my lifetime, and this is the second hurdle. We leave it to the experts. We live in a society 
that if you don't know how to do something, we typically just pay the expert to come in and do it. Now, honestly, this is much more prevalent in white-collar churches. Like the last church I served at, it was a very white-collar community. And so I know for many, I'm here I'm preaching to the choir, very affluent, very wealthy where I was before. Many didn't serve in the nursery, right? It was hard to get nursery volunteers. So we had to pay nursery staff to come in and work every week. We didn't potluck all the time. Many times we catered the meal. We didn't consider being part of a short-term mission team. We just paid missionaries or we paid the professionals, the youth group, to go and serve in missions all across the world. We leave it to the experts. Now, I'm not anti-expert. Don't hear that. If someone is gifted in something, we should empower them in their field. My fear is that too many of us have left discipleship, have left one anothering to the experts. Look, pastor, when, when Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, he's really only talking about paid clergy. Pastor, when the challenge is for someone to love our neighbor well, well, that's what I pay you to do. Pastor, uh, when it comes to uh, loving my enemy, I'm going to empower you to do that really well. I pay you to be the good Samaritan. Clearly God isn't asking me of this. Yes, he is, church. Now let's be real. Most of us in the room get that here. Okay? I'm convinced I'm speaking to the choir. And we don't need experts to we do need experts to train us on how to do it better, but a lack of an expert should not be an excuse to not participate. And the main way we overcome these two hurdles is to actually one another, to take seriously what it means to be the body of Christ. And my prayer is that this series helps us to do this better. So to answer the most obvious question in the room, what does the phrase one another point to in the Bible? What does the phrase one another point to in the Bible? Uh, one another is two words in English and one word in Greek, ale loan. It's used 100 times in 94 verses in the New Testament, 47 of which are instructions to the church, and 60% of those come from the Apostle Paul. Now, there are clusters of one another phrases. What I mean by that is they cluster around specific topics, and we're going to cover those three topics over the course of the summer, along with some of the other one another phrases. But the main focus of one another phrases, and you'll find this in your fill-in-the-blank, is unity, love, and humility. Unity, love, and humility. I'm going to see if there's a slide for that. There is. Awesome. Today we're going to look at the unity passages within Scripture because a whole third of the verses, the one anothering verses, deal with unity. So let us hear the challenge of how this points to the disciples, disciple making in our church. So let's begin our study today by seeing what unity would have us seek. The first thing unity would have us seek is to seek peace. Let's look at Mark 9 real quick. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, this could very much be one of the most misunderstood verses, uh, mostly because when we think of a salty individual, 
The laughter says it all, doesn't it? To be salty is to be a little bit in your face. But what the salt is talking about here in the old world is salt is a preserving agent. They would put salt on meat to make it last a long time. You see, it's a sustaining agent. That's why it calls us in the same phrase to live peaceably. Be salty. Be sustaining in your culture. Now, this also is a call to look different from the rest of the world, which is honestly becoming easier and easier to do as we live in a more divisive culture. Everyone is someone's enemy on Facebook, and one people group is always the oppressor and the oppressed. Now, should we seek biblical justice for our neighbors? Absolutely. I'm not discounting that. But we should seek peace, first and foremost, with one another. You see, a church should be a place of peace. A church should be a place of peace. Now, I want you to hear this a, a third time for me saying it, because when I say church, I don't mean the building. I mean the people. A church should be a place of peace. We should be at peace with one another, or at least seeking peace with one another, which means if you have conflict with someone in the church, you have to deal with it. One hurdle to this that I have seen time and time again is the elevation of man's law over God's law, man's law over God's law. If there is enmity, if there is brokenness, if there's potential sin between two brothers and sisters within the church, and they actually come to me and they want to seek counsel on how to move through it, right, or, or how to deal with this conflict, I'm prone to ask one question as we move towards the conversation. I'm giving you my playbook, okay? So if you ever come to me with an issue with another member of the church, know that this is the question I'm going to ask you, okay? And be prepared for it. Here's the question, right? Which of God's laws did they break? Which of God's laws did they break? And believe it or not, most of the time I have asked that question, they are stuck dumbfounded because they have not considered the law of God when they have been offended. This happens all the time. I'll give you an example. At home with my children. I've had a long day of work. I've not eaten yet, which means I'm a little hangry. And I'm sitting there on the couch with a little bit of a headache. And my children are for the 12th time since I've been home singing about this guy named Bruno. <laughs> now some of you have understood this and experienced this. And ironically, the whole song is about not talking about Bruno. But they keep doing it. And in that moment, I am prone to lash out at my children. Because I'm the king of my domain. I am the father of my house. And you need to stop singing about this man. Now, which of God's laws have they broken? The 11th commandment? Don't sing Disney show tunes? <laughs> they broke my law. They stepped on my feet. They got on my nerves. 
And instead of doing the right thing and asking them to stop because I have a headache, I demean their songs and their singing. I get mad at them for being seven. Now, if I had asked them gently to stop singing or go into the other room to continue their musical, and they chose to defiantly not do that, then yes, indeed, they have broken the fifth commandment to honor their father and mother. But much of the time, I am not frustrated because they broke God's law. I'm frustrated because they broke mine. And hopefully, that home analogy spurs life spurs considerations of life analogies that maybe happen in your life. Because my guess, because you're human, is that this happens in your day-to-day experience too. And it's even harder if you have any power in your spheres of influence. Understand this, we have unwritten social cues in our culture, like all cultures, that we elevate above the law of God. And when someone breaks them, because God is not there to judge, we eagerly take his place. I'll say that again. We have unwritten social cues in our culture, like all cultures, that we elevate above the law of God. And when someone breaks them, because God is not there to judge, we eagerly take his place. When this happens in a church setting, it can become so destructive. You see, we must both submit ourselves to the law of the Lord and we must actively make sure that we don't hold our own law above his. And this is something all men and women are prone to do. Ironically, right, I'm convinced this is where most grudges come from. It typically doesn't develop into a grudge when someone breaks God's law. It develops into a grudge when someone's broken your own. And some people like to collect grudges like, they like, like their children collect Pokemon. And they're convinced they got to catch them all. We all know those people. That's for you, Jamie, okay? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. That yourselves is another one another phrase that's in the Greek, but we are more likely to grumble because our pride has been shot at and not the glory of God. And what makes conflict within our own personal law so difficult is that the other person can have an extremely different personal law than us. This is the key to understanding this next verse, Romans 12, um, Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. You see, we can only live in harmony if we're submitting to the same law. Hear that again. We can only live in harmony if we're submitting to the same law. It's when we write our own and expect everyone else to live by it that we find conflict and discord. Here's the turn though, right? There will actually be seasons of life where God's law has been broken in between Christians. There are one another passages that speak to this too. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Here's the second thing we must seek as we seek unity, and that is to seek forgiveness. This is hard. I'm just going to say that straight up. This is hard. There are plenty of people that say, you're forgiven so flippantly, and then they just avoid the other person like the plague. Forgiveness is costly. Ask Jesus. But Jesus in Matthew 18 lays out the way in which we are to seek forgiveness. We're going to look at that verse this morning. It's in your bulletin as well because I felt like it was needed for you to kind of chew on as you go home today. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why does it start that way? That means that we aren't gossiping about what the other person has done to you before you actually go deal with them. Did you, do you know what they did to me? When you hear that from one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, your first response should be, have you gone and talked to them? Because if it's not, it's gossip. I know this is hard for some of you, right? To confront somebody. Maybe you don't like confrontation. Some of you like confrontation a little too much, okay? But understand, for those of you that where confrontation is hard, this is so good for your soul and for the soul of your brother or sister in Christ. Look, if you need a pep talk in this area, call me, call Jack, call one of the others, elders, others too, elders, and we'll pray for you. And we'll pray that the Lord would give you peace as you seek unity. Look, it's approaching the offender and saying, look, hey, this is really hard for me. I'm not good at this, so if I stumble over it, I'm sorry. But when you did this, it really hurt me. And I want peace and unity, unity between us as a brother and sister in Christ. Can we, can we make this right? And the scriptures continue that if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. I said it a few weeks ago. The best of our friends are the ones that call you out on, on your junk, not just the ones that pat you on the back and on the shoulder and say your sin is all right. But the Lord continues. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is, is protect you from harm. And also, if this continues to go down the line, when you have to go to a church, you have two or three witnesses that can corroborate your conversation. And if it still persists, this is what it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That means that if you've gone to them, if you've gone to them with multiple people as they sinned against you, that means you get to bring it to our el your elders. And we get to help deal with it as the church. Hurrah! It's our most favorite thing next to burying people. But we do it. 
because we love you. We want to make much of the glory of God. We want to seek righteousness and holiness as a church because that's what's been commanded to us in scriptures. This is a good thing for us to pursue. We desire unity as a church. We desire peace, and we seek both peace and forgiveness. We are actually, as we seek both peace and forgiveness, we actually seek the very heart of Christ. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Sometimes that means saying the hard things and dealing with sin. Further, James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Look, repentance and confession aren't just like a Roman Catholic thing. They're a Catholic thing, a little C Catholic, all church thing. They're a Christian thing. We confess our sins to one another because we have a great high priest who's already, always ready to hear our confessions. For in seeking unity, in seeking peace, in seeking forgiveness, we seek Christ. We seek Christ. Look, we live in a broken world that's prone to make enemies, that's prone to follow their own way. I was reading Judges a couple weeks ago, um, and the book of Judges ends with a very profound verse um, that is not only profound to their age, but the age that we live in. Um, This is what Judges ends with. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Think of how we've talked about man's law and how we only have, all have our own different laws that we want everyone else to follow. Which this verse is just another way of saying everyone was their own king. I'm my own king of my own domain and I'll do what is right in my own eyes. You see, when we actively submit to the law of Christ and in the process seek healing, for the wrongs done against us and by us, we can find the peace that we've always longed for. Corey Ten Boom has much to say on forgiveness. If you're someone struggling in a season of forgiveness, I highly suggest reading some of her writing. I want to read you an article to end our sermon today. I shared this from the pulpit a while ago, and I hope it demonstrates to you the way that she sought Christ in the midst of seeking unity. I've edited her letter a little for time's sake. Um, and for those of you that are wondering, I'm not going to give it a German accent as I go through that. I know that's disappointing for some of you. This is what she wrote. I was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands, People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in a bitter and bombed out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, because maybe because the sea is never far from Hollanders' minds. I'd like to think that that's where forgiveness Forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. 
The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. They were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. So at the end, people stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps, and in silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Froilen. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I who spoke so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and his leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release I had come face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensburg in your talk, he was saying, I was a guard there. No, he, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Froilene, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not, Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that I stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily exercise. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with my coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperament of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodingly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then 
This healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficult in forgiving. I wish I could say. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on. But they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. You see, forgiveness is the path to seeking Christ. And when we have Christ, we can have peace. We gain a brother or sister whether there was enmity. We can find peace in a world that craves conflict. Turn on the news at night and you will forever find an enemy. Come to church on Sunday and I pray you find your forever family. The reason I want to give you these discipleship vignettes before service each sermon is because I think it's in these one anothering moments that these one anothering take place in community. I hope that we find triads and quads of Christians to do life together with in the days ahead, to grow together with, to spur one another on. You see, it's one thing to hear a good sermon on Sunday. That's a whole other thing to meet with brothers and sisters of Christ and actually be held accountable to what the Bible has been saying to us from that sermon to rebuke one another in our sin and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation when we fail instead of just ignore sin, which is the American way of dealing with sin. We ignore it at best and we celebrate it at worst. In the days ahead, may we look to find ways to have our own one anothering moments. They'll not always be easy. I can promise you that. But they'll always be good. And they go hand in hand with the discipleship, with coming, one alo coming alongside one another during the grand seasons of life and the valley of the shadow. May we be the church. May we find forgiveness horizontally with our neighbor and vertically with our God. Maybe you're here today and unity, one anothering, is a very foreign concept. And if that's the case, my guess is, is because unity with our God is still foreign to you. One of the phrases that takes place over and over again within the New Testament is union with Christ. If you ever do a word study, you'll find that over and over again. It's directly linked to, linked to being born again. For when we're born again, there's a union that takes place with the God of the universe that justifies us in our sin and sanctifies us as we move through life so that one anothering becomes just another thing that we do and not something that is foreign to us. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, if, if union with Christ is foreign with you, 
and you would like peace and forgiveness this day, I pray that you would come and speak to me or Jack after service. Speak to one of the elders. For all we need to do is cry out to God. For if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he has raised his son from the dead, then we will be saved. And so, Lord, may we find that this day. Bow your heads with me.